Today is Saturday, October 17th, 2020, and this is episode 51 of A House Divided. My name is Nick Samarco. I'm Matt Lewis. And today we will be discussing the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, the fallout from the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post and Twitter's subsequent suppression of the story, and end with a classic House Divided segment, What You're Looking At. Matt and I have been diving into some new literature, some new stories, some new columns, some new opinions this week, and we'll give our take on something that caught our eye. Before we get started, Matt, where can people find uh, the show on social media? You can find the show on social media on Twitter and Instagram at AHDPod. You can find myself on Twitter at Matt T.R. Lewis. That's three T's. Follow Nick on Twitter at NickSamarco, N-I-C-K-S-A-M-M-A-R-C-O. Follow Ben on Twitter at Benedict Lucius. And, um... Signal Andy by holding else? two Signal, so Yeah, 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 the Mystic Aquarium. Aquarium. I almost forgot about the Mystic Aquarium. Um, and then make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever podcasting platform you listen to, whether that be iTunes, SoundCloud. Not SoundCloud, actually. SoundCloud sucks. Uh, I SoundCloud's for Mumble Rappers. Um, um, Come on, Matt. Spotify. Get with the program. <laughs> I know it's early today, but get with it the program. It is early. It's early. It's early. I'm, I'm like, yeah, SoundCloud. Not SoundCloud. <laughs> um, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Podbean. Um, I don't know. Anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if it allows for a rating, make sure you give us five stars, whether that's on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else that allows you to give ratings. Spotify notoriously doesn't. Mm. Uh, anything else that I should be saying? No, I think that's it. So All let's right. roll into our first topic here. The, uh, the, the, the judge, for, uh, future justice, I think at this point is fair to say, Amy Coney Barrett a- was C- <laughs> no was on uh, <laughs> <laughs> was on Capitol Hill this week for I three days of hearings. He just unintentionally copied Rich Lowry's Michael. Yeah, Brent you do that a lot. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean to do that, but I think I did. Well, you know, I, I it's watched. All, the, it's uh, all subconscious. I watched Netflix's. Um, Cuties. I think I've watched half of it. No, I've watched the Social <laughs> Dilemma. I've watched the Social Dilemma, which is all the ways it it, it talks about all the ways that um, social media influences the way that we think, and uh, I think that you have fallen victim to the Apple Podcast algorithm. Or the, the, what do you use? Do you use Spotify to listen to podcasts? I don't know what you use. Yeah, I use Spotify. Okay. I use, I so use Spotify. You've, you've fallen victim to the Spotify algorithm. Uh, it, it is it is latched into your brain. It, the algorithm's latched into my brain? Yes, because it has appealed to all of your uh, desires and has given you that podcast to listen to. And it is just... The National Review's The Editors. You, yeah, you don't it, think it I is, started listening to that? Not I didn't... Spotify never recommended it to me. I, I listened to it because I subscribed to the magazine. Stop trying to ruin my point, okay? <laughs> this is for comedic effect. It has latched itself onto your lizard brain, okay? Yes, on my lizard brain, and now I'm copying everything that Rich Lowry does, which That's is... exactly how these, these things work. Okay. Um, so anyways, back to our story. Judge, future justice, Amy Coney Barrett, was on Capitol Hill for three days. Senate Judiciary hearings. Uh, vote is being held, I think, um, uh, this, this, uh, damn it, I have to let out the cat out of the bag that we're recording this before Saturday, but I think it's coming, um, I think it's coming on Monday. So, anything that sticks out of your mind um, from these hearings, Matt, to be quite honest, they were kind of milk toast in my mind. There wasn't a ton to gather from it, but... What did you think of uh, the hearings themselves and anything that sticks out in particular from them? Yeah, so I, I wasn't watching, like, incessantly every moment of the hearings. I know some people were. They just have them on in the background. They were watching everything that was happening. I have to um, say, 
I've start, I I watched a good chunk of the first day, and unlike the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, there was just nothing to keep my attention. I totally agree with well, you. Well, yeah, because Brett Kavanaugh was being accused of a, a incredibly heinous crime, and um, it was very dramatic. This was just a normal uh, a Senate hearing for a, a judge uh, to be a justice. And so that was actually kind of nice uh, to not have any overly dramatic moments. Um, some things that stuck out as strange that I saw uh, were Sheldon Whitehouse's um, like Glenn Beck style um, conspiracy, like where he's like tracing the money and, and all that stuff. I don't know if you saw that. Um, that was I little, did. There was, that was a, a little there odd. Was a, no chalkboard, but a lot of uh, a lot of Bristol boards. Yeah, yeah, and then he dropped some. Like I don't know, I don't know what was going on with that, but uh, that was a little strange. Um, he did the same thing in the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but with I think Brett that, Kavanaugh's yearbook. I think that you know, uh, uh, Senator Whitehouse was it was it Whitehouse? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the Senator, Senator Whitehouse. from Rhode Island. Yeah, but he doesn't have an accent. He's I know, I know, a, I know. He's definitely somebody that moved in the state to run for office. I don't even know his his background, but I'll make that <laughs> estimation. Um, the uh, um, t- I I think he's read a little bit too much of mystery novels. <laughs> yeah, and he watched. I don't know. Like he might have been an obsessive like Glenn Beck hater, but he watched Glenn Beck a lot. And now he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what Glenn Beck does. But but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know whatever. I'm just gonna do it on the left. Um, it was just very strange. I concur. Uh, so that that's what stuck out in your mind over anything else or anything um, else. What did you I make mean, of the judge's performance? Uh, she had no notes, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, when uh, who who was the senator? I can't remember who was it. It was John Cornyn. Yeah, Cornyn. I thought Texas. it was Cornyn. Um, Cornyn's like, oh, Judge Barrett. Like, can you show us your notepad? And she holds it up, and it's just empty. Like the ability to like actually go through hearing like that with no notes is is pretty cool. Um, you have to be pretty exceptional, uh, in the brain to do that. Um, and obviously she's proven to be pretty exceptional. I mean, she's being nominated to the Supreme Court and she has seven kids. So, um, you know, this is a pretty exceptional person. So, um, there were a couple other things too. Like, I think, um, Maisie Hirono was just annoying. Um, (laughs) I, I, I can't remember anything specific that she did, but I saw lots of clips. Um, you saw a the lot clips. Of, I saw the clips. I, I went on Twitter. I saw the clips. I'm the clips. Making, making up my own mind about them. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It was like pretty average hearing. Uh, not a lot of questions from what I watched. It was just a lot of senators grandstanding. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I like I said, I didn't watch a lot of it. So I, I, uh, I concur. I thought the judge did a fantastic job. She's going to be an extremely... Um, capable justice uh it was just evident from her testimony that 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 is the case uh nothing bad to say about her performance besides the uh the consistent trend of supreme court nominees to not answer questions i'm not going to falter specifically for that it's just a thing that frustrates me to no end because we all know their answers um for the most part i i shouldn't say we all know their answers (laughs) I mean, look at look at Chief Justice John Roberts as a perfect example of that, or uh, or, or or Neil Gorsuch's recent opinions. Um, but anyway, stock. Yeah, the uh, the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that these hearings were a perfect example of negative partisanship, 
in the sense that both sides were trying to own the other side by making the other side slip up and say something that was detestable. Uh, the The Democratic strategy during the entire hearing was to try and pin uh, Republicans and uh, Judge Barrett with um, wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And they did this through repeated, repeated, it was incessant almost, appeals to emotion by showing a picture of, here is John Smith from, you know, Dearborn, Michigan, and he had his life saved because he didn't have to pay for health insurance on, thanks to Obamacare. That is so frustrating to see from just a a personal level to me, Um, the... That was frustrating. Yeah, Cory Booker did that with someone. Uh, I know a lot of them did it. I know a lot of them did it, but I saw the one that I saw was Cory Booker doing it. Well, Um, it also it also is dumb because the idea that the Supreme Court is going to overturn the Affordable Care Act in its entirety (laughs) is ridiculous. I mean, especially the way that the current court is constituted. And it's so frustrating. It really is. You know, because they sit, they go up there, and then they put up like a little poster board. It's a picture of them, and then they go, "You want this person to die, and you're going to kill them." And it's like, you know, I know, I know. They're 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 implying that heavily, right? And saying, "If you do this, then you know they're all going to die." And it's like, I okay, no one (laughs) wants them to die. And what that has to uh, do with the role of a what that has to do with the role of a judge in my mind is 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 nothing. Uh, by and large, um, and you know, switching to the Republican side of things, I honestly think the Democrats, you know, questions about abortion and uh, uh, you know some of um, Justice Barrett's opinions on that subject were perfectly legitimate in my mind. Although I obviously have quibbles with, uh, not quibbles, but quibbles. Uh, <laughs> major objections with the idea that Roe versus Wade is somehow legally sound doctrine. I have no problem with them asking questions. <laughs> you have about quibbles it. with it. Yeah, just just slight quibbles. <laughs> <laughs> um, but going to the Republican side, and I saw this among friends. The we were not we, but the 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 people that have been so influenced by this negative partisanship trend in our in our politics were just looking for the moment to be able to claim, look, the Democrats hate Catholics or the Democrats hate religious people, and they were just. They, I honestly think that some people prayed that that would happen. And I mean, legitimately prayed that that would happen, so that they could use their, you know, thumbs on Twitter and hammer them over the head with a bad clip, and and that it would happen, and that it would help, you know, with the election coming up. And that didn't happen. Do you do you disagree with that? By and large, I mean, I didn't really see anything that was quite objectionable to me. There was one weird question, but nothing stood out. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats are stupid, but they're not that stupid, um, and so. I knew that they probably weren't going to go for the religion bashing. I, I thought it was semi-likely. I thought maybe they might do it, um, especially with the whole people of praise thing and lots of media outlets were running hit pieces on on that. But as they saw, it wasn't really working and that they really need to win the Catholic swing vote in the Midwest to have a, a strong chance at, at winning the election, although that looks less and less likely as a needed thing now. Um, <laughs> yeah, but. Uh- I'll quickly but, go into um, that after them. But, you know, that is something they were they had to be cognizant about. And they were. 
and they didn't uh, attack her faith, which um, was kind of refreshing for me. I don't know. Um, I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend that I know uh, if any of the Democrats actually does hate Catholics, um, because that's a stupid thing. I don't well, know what's uh, going can you, on. Can you give them um, the benefit of the doubt and say I, yeah. the vast majority of them don't? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I would say okay. that there is some contempt for different um, things that would make someone a Catholic, like being pro-life. I concur, yes. Um, you know, being anti-euthanasia, um, you know, being... Uh, Traditionalist more traditional, sexual morality, Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, not just in sexual morality, but in lots of different kinds of morality. Of course, and, of course. You know, course. All, all, all different things. There are uh, different things to the left and the right uh, contempt about Catholics. Um, sure. But, uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, we, that didn't come out during the hearings, which was, which was kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, the, the hearings were kind of refreshing. There was... Uh, plenty of moments where uh, senators were being quite cordial with one another and 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 kind of putting stuff aside for Diane a few Feinstein. seconds. Feinstein ended the hearings by giving Lindsey Lindsey Graham a gigantic hug. Uh, Cory Booker joked with Ted Cruz that he was a closet vegan. I mean, it it, it was it was kind of refreshing to well, see. Well, and Diane Feinstein's been canceled for that hug now. And she has, but canceled <laughs> by blue check marks on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter She's, Twitter isn't real life. She ain't going nowhere, as they no. say. I mean, she yeah. what she say to a bunch of kids? She's like, uh, basically like, oh, that was the, uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, Green yeah. New Deal stuff. Right? Yeah, I and the kids that. came in like, you need to pass the Green New Deal. She's like, shut up. <laughs> oh, she said, uh, she said something like, um, she did the whole "I've been here for thirty years" or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she you basically guys know nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was it was good. It, it was refreshing. I, I like more that. of that. Oh, I know. I I mean, honestly, people need to start telling. I mean, those were like what sixth graders or something. But people they, need to start. Yeah, say, they were young. People need to start saying that to college students. Like, I've been here for thirty years. <laughs> you don't know anything. Shut the hell up. Yeah, um, just like um, us on this podcast right now. Yes, exactly. The same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that yeah, it was, it was, it was fine. I don't think anybody won really, besides Judge Barrett here. I mean, she came off as 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 eminently qualified. She'll be a a, a justice for many years to come. Uh, an incredibly inspiring woman. Still um, waiting for my T-shirt from the NRSC. Well, <laughs> I don't know when that's going to get here. <laughs> it may not. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's getting lost with all the ballots. <laughs> that's right. It's in the ditch. Um, it's in the ditch. So the question I want to kind of question I kind of want to turn. It got me thinking. This whole charade of uh, judges not answering questions that they really should be answering. It, I mean, in stark contrast to Robert Bork's hearing, there really wasn't a ton of. Uh, substance displayed uh, or discussed um, <laughs> in these hearings from from Judge Barrett. And it's totally understandable. Obviously, she showed her understanding and grasp of the law, but she really didn't go into any of her thoughts on uh, on, on on issues in, in in previous jurisprudence. And that's due in part to this, in my opinion, dumb standard that both sides have adopted called that they now refer to as the Ginsburg rule, where they basically defer any question on a specific topic to uh, saying that I don't want to prejudge an issue, which I get to an extent, but it seems to me that this charade is unsustainable because uh, it just basically reduces Supreme Court hearings to coalitional um, coalitional um, hearings where whatever side has the most votes will always win and confirm justices, and that's not what the Supreme Court should be, in my opinion. Uh what do you make of this proposal, Matt? 
I've kind of I've been thinking a lot about this. At some point, both sides are going to have to let the cat out of the bag, per se, and, and, and make it clear of what they're actually searching for in justices. I think that there's a good chunk of Democrats that are searching for a, a judicial activist um, that will, uh, you know, basically turn the Supreme Court into another legislative body and reinterpret the Constitution as the the left desires. And there's a uh, significant chunk of the right, including myself, that believes that. Justices have a well-defined role, and that is um, to be originalist interpretation uh, interpreters of the law and, and make rulings based on the way that the Constitution and the law was written and understood. I think that – I don't know if the next hearing is the place to do it, but when Republicans are in a relative position of strength um, – that may not happen based on election predictions right now. Biden's projected to win handily, and the Senate's projected to to swing over to the Democrats. Who knows? But at some point, I, I think it's time for Republicans to set a standard of, if you are not an originalist judge who will interpret the Constitution as written and understood, you shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Am I off base there? Do you think it's a fool's errand? What do you think? Um, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, a lot of the time in the past, uh, what's happened is that Basically, if the judge was qualified, they would get, you know, close to 100 votes in the Senate. You know, it would be pretty pretty much unanimous. And it's slowly kind of whittled down until now we have these party-lined votes. And considering that development, um, although I still think that even if they were getting unanimous votes, this still might hold, um, we should only be voting for originalist ju- just judges to be justices. Um, and I think that essentially what what we need to do is is a little bit um it it breaks the mold because everyone everyone basically already knows what's up we know that re- democrats are nominating activists uh we know that republicans are nominating trying to nominate originalists trying to trying to trying to is the keyword um and and the real problem is that we don't ask any questions in the hearings like are you you know are you an originalist? Ooh, that might be a good question. Um, you know, how do you, what's your judicial philosophy? Um, and that kind of goes by the wayside. Um, and, and we need to know, like, we need to be asking, like, okay, yes, how would, what, what's your opinion on Roe v. Wade? And, like, seriously, like, what is, is that sound legal doctrine? Because if you think it is, I'm not voting for you. Like, and I, that's the Josh Hawley rule or whatever. But um, I, I think that, you know, a slight, you know, I think that the Josh Hawley rule and that, regard isn't the worst thing uh i don't think it's I the agree. only i don't think it's the only reason uh to vote for justice um i think if they're largely originalists then that's good but um i i, I don't think that we need to be like you know kind of t- tiptoeing around the issue here because everyone already knows like this is already happening we, we we know trump is trying to nominate originalist justices and then in the hearings it all becomes like oh we're not allowed to talk about this and um like we are allowed to talk about it i don't know it's very strange to me it's a very strange practice um and and this is actually the position i respect most on the right uh as far as like ideological consistency and how we behave in regards to um policy uh, at least right now, I respect our our judicial like philosophy the most because we're not trying to nominate activist judges. Um, we're sure. we're trying to nominate people who might actually disagree with us sometimes, um, and and that's good. We we want someone with a sound judicial philosophy. We don't want someone who's legislating from the bench. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, I'm biased because obviously I am on the right. Um, <laughs> I, I I respect the right uh, on this issue more than on some others. 
I I concur. Um, I think that the the right approach to jurisprudence is one of the only bright spots left. Um, you know, I was thinking a lot about the Holly Rule too, because it is I'm going to call it the Holly Rule. His his uh, his his stated standard that he has to vote for a, 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 to earn his vote, a justice has to say that they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, which he has kind of immediately abandoned. <laughs> he set out the, he set out the standard, I think, in August, and, and he's, well, yeah, opened because up because it's not a realistic standard at the right. moment. Also, he's a partisan hack, but um, yeah, the that standard is not something that I honestly object to. Um, because there's it, a lot it, to it, object to with Josh Hawley. Uh, there is a ton that I object to with Josh Hawley, and hopefully that we don't have to deal with him after this election, but I have a feeling we will. Um, and that's a good segue into our next topic that we'll get to in a minute. But um, it just it just seems to me that at some point we have to be honest about what's going on. And if you want to make – and the reason why you have to be honest is because if you want to make the argument that justices should interpret the law in the way that we think it should be interpreted and act as judges the way that we think they should act as judges, you actually have to make the case and not pretend that everything is okay and that, hey, we're actually nominating uh, uh, John Roberts every single time um, right. here. That's not Because we don't want to nominate John Roberts every time. Like, that right. would be and, bad. In a consistent problem that I have with the way that a right, the, 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 for lack of a better term, the right approaches policy and in, in, in politics these days is that they, they only view it through the lens of short-term political gains and do not attempt to make long-term arguments. And I think this is, I think that this is one of, uh, one of, one of the, one of those issues as well. If you actually want to change minds on this issue, you actually have to be honest about what you're trying to argue for, and I think it's time that we um, that we that we start doing it. So uh, that that those are those are my thoughts. Um, let's move on to our next subject, unless you have anything else to to drop in here. Uh, the the Washington the not the Washington Post, the New York Post released a story. On uh, what day? What day was that? Here, I'm pulling up the story uh, right it's like, here. It's like yesterday or the day before. I think it's the day before yesterday. <sighs> I mean, uh, which would have been Wednesday. Week, for a week that hasn't really had a ton of uh, for a ton of news. I mean, there is just a ton of stuff going on. There isn't really a ton of stuff of importance, but there is just a volume of stuff. It was released two days on on the 14th of October. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so headline: Smoking gun emails reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessmen to VP Dad. So, if you remember back to your favorite subject, impeachment, the oh. yeah, the crux of the uh, uh, the the Trump defense was that he was just investigating he was just asking the Ukrainians to investigate whether or not Joe Biden had paid off he had had refused to fire a Ukrainian investigator uh, prosecutor because uh that prosecutor I, I I'm sorry <laughs> the crux of the argument from the Trump defense was that um Trump was just asking the Ukrainian, just the just was asking the Ukrainians to investigate whether or not Trump had had a, a top prosecutor fired because that prosecutor was going to look into his son Hunter's business dealings in the country, which were not uh, entirely above the board. So 
According to this New York Post story, I'm going to read you the first paragraph. Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company, according to emails obtained by the Post. So right off the bat, we need to clear up a few things. So these emails that are the central piece of evidence in this uh, this story run by the Post and written by... Um, Emma Jo Morris and Gabriel Fonrouge, F-O-N-R-O-U-G-E, I think I got that. These emails apparently emanated from a laptop that was left at a Delaware computer store. Now, there's not a ton of evidence to substantiate the idea that this actually happened, that there was actually a laptop that was dropped off, and that these emails originally came from the laptop. But... Let's just, for the sake of argument, assume that all of it is true, right? Also important to remember that the story has been shipped out by the one, the only Rudy Giuliani, who is not the, he's not a noted uh, above truth the board teller. actor. Yeah, not a not a not a noted um, truth teller. So, in these emails, it's uh, it's an email from this Ukrainian executive who says, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving me an opportunity to meet your father. This is in April of 2015. And spend some time together. It, it's really an honor and a pleasure. As we spoke yesterday evening, would be great to meet for a quick coffee. What do you think? I could come to your, uh, your office somewhere around noon or so. Best, uh, Vadim Pozharsky. So, the, the implication that the New York Post is trying to draw is that Hunter Biden introduced his father to this guy in order to leverage some financial gain. There's, there is evidence that this... Uh, the, the email is the only piece of evidence suggesting that this meeting ever happened. There is no um, official record of the meeting. Of course there wouldn't be, right, if it was something uh, I- illegal. That's, of course, an, an arguable point. But there is no direct link between that has been established thus far between a meeting with this Ukrainian executive and the firing of this Ukrainian prosecutor that has not been established. It is not really the smoking gun that the New York post is trying to make it out to be. Anyways, what did you make of the story? That's my spin on it. At least maybe you have something different. And then we got to talk about the way that social media, specifically Twitter and Facebook, um, handled the story because it is very odd. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 it could have some major implications for some arguments coming forward. So what did you make of the story? Yeah, so like you said, I had some some issues with it as far as like it coming from Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. Um, or maybe not Steve Bannon. I don't know. Steve Bannon's in prison. Um, but, you know, it, it the sourcing was questionable. But um, based on what was actually expounded on in the article... Um, it was, it was, uh, not the friendliest article to the Biden, uh, you know, to Biden's reputation. Um, strangely enough, Biden has a hard time, like, actually getting things to stick to him, which uh, is good for him. Um, but it's, it's interesting because there's obviously something shady going on with Hunter Biden and Ukraine. Um, I, I've read through the article, uh, once I'm, uh, when it was, uh, what was Wednesday when it came out. Um, so I don't really, I don't have any like strong, strong feelings about it, but it is uh, not a good look for Biden. Um, but it is, oh yeah definitely uh, I, I think the bigger story here is, is, is Twitter's reaction. 
Yeah, and I'm usually one to say the you know the conservative spin that it's always the media reactions that's the story is is ludicrous. But I I agree in this situation the reaction from social media giants Twitter and Facebook um, is the story, and the the story is is that. Um, Twitter basically wouldn't allow you to tweet out this story for a good chunk of time. They claimed that it was based on uh, some some guidelines that they had established. They claimed that it had violated their 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 terms of service. I'm going to pull up their exact uh, justification here. Um, so Twitter, like I said, pulled this down for just a little bit, and uh, they they justified themselves on the ground that it had been in violation of the rules. They say, we want to provide much-needed clarity around the actions we've taken this morning with respect to two New York Post articles that were first tweeted this morning. The images contained in the article include personal and private information like email addresses and phone numbers, which violate our rules. As noted this morning, we, are currently, we, we also currently view materials, including in the articles, as violations of our hacked materials policy, commentary or on or discussion about hacked materials, such as the articles that cover them but do not include or link to the materials themselves aren't a violation of the policy. So that's covering them at their ass saying that the New York Times tax story is not a violation of their ter- <laughs> their terms because it isn't a direct link to the hacked material. Um, our policy only covers links to or images of hacked material themselves. The policy established in 2018 prohibits the use of our service to distribute content obtained without authorization. We don't want to incentivize hacking by allowing Twitter to be used as a distribution for potentially illegally obtained materials. We know we have more work to do to provide clarity on our products when we enforce our rules in this manner. We should provide additional clarity in context when t- the preventing the tweeting or DMing of URLs that violate our policies. We recognize that Twitter is just one of many places where people can find information online. And the Twitter rules are intended to protect the conversation on our service and to add context to people's experience where we can. And Facebook basically slowed the um, the algorithm for this specific article, not allowing people, not allowing the algorithm to do what it naturally may have done uh, in terms of sending the story out to more and more people. That's how these websites work. The more you click, the more people see it. So, what are your thoughts on Twitter's policy here? Um, and the the broader implications it has for what I see as the upcoming battle over big tech regulation. Yeah, I mean, it was totally hypocritical. Um, they don't ever do this for anyone else, for any other articles. Um, I've never seen Twitter do anything like this. Uh, even if these, these, these policies have stood, they've never enforced them, uh, especially not for a mainstream news article. Uh, like the New York Post... Uh, as much as I'm not the biggest fan of it, um, it is a tabloid. It's kind of, eh. um, but it is a mainstream news page. It's a res- you know semi-respectable. Like you know, I'd put it up there with with you know like Fox or whatever. You know, like it's you're not gonna. I don't think that that social media has a place censoring like that kind of content. If you want to censor like WikiLeaks or you know something some like weird conspiratorial, maybe maybe you know I don't know. Uh, but but this is not a some weird uh, news outlet. This is a a forefront at the forefront of of reporting. Um, can I put you to the Can I put you to the task here a little bit? Sure. I've been thinking about this myself. Where do you draw that line? I mean, Facebook and Twitter, I think, have been doing something productive in censoring um, you know QAnon conspiracy theory pages that are pushing right. out extremely harmful stuff, but. I mean, they get into really dangerous territory where they start. Um, I, I don't want to say dangerous. I think that's ridiculous. So they become they, gatekeepers. Yeah, they 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 get into some slippery territory. I think is the best word when they when they when they get into censoring stories from you know major outlets like the New York Post. Yeah, 
Um, I don't know exactly where the line is. Um, I'd have to like see. I don't know. I mean, there, there is. It's. I'm gonna go with the Scalia uh, definition of pornography and apply it to this. Like, you know, you don't know a mainstream news outlet. Like, you can't define it. Uh, but I know it when I see it. Um, so you're saying you'll have to see the imaginary line. Basically. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> um, you know, like obviously, like I don't know, whatever. Some neo-Nazi website is not, you know, a mainstream news outlet. Um, but you know, something like even the Daily Wire arguably is, um, as much as it's not, you know, uh, unbiased. It is. It's certainly biased. But like, I wouldn't. It gets censor... more. It gets more interaction than the New York Times. I'm sure. Sure. By far. Um, you know, I wouldn't censor like just because something's opinionated. I wouldn't censor. I would censor more niche like radical websites. Um, and the, the question is, how do you draw the line there? But I don't know. Um, and that's only on social media. Obviously, you can't censor them through the government, First Amendment, yada, yada, yada. Um, but anyway. Well, should we? Should we? So uh, let's let's turn to the broader issue of, of, of big tech. Um, Senator Josh Hawley, as I said, good transition into our next topic, Yes, uh, has called for Jack Dorsey to come and testify under subpoena, um, penalty of perjury. Has subpoena Dorsey under the penalty of perjury, perjury to testify in Capitol Hill. Man, my phraseology was messed up there. Uh, and he's claiming that this is a potential violation of campaign finance laws. Now, that is a very, very, a very difficult uh, uh, case to make. And uh, Twitter is basically protected under Section 230. But, yeah. I mean, what – not specifically under Section 230, but they are project protected from doing what they want to do here. I mean, what do you make of the growing influence of these platforms in um, the way that they're manifesting themselves now? I think Jack Dorsey is... Uh, I think Josh Hawley is actually totally within his rights to ask uh, Jack Dorsey to come and testify um, because asking someone to come and testify is not the same thing as stripping Section 230. Um I think that there needs to be some look taken at how we treat these these platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, anything, all these social media platforms where you can basically post anything. I don't know exactly what we should do. Uh, I'm not a policy wonk in the big tech area, um, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm, I'm, I know the magical solution. Um, but I'm not a huge fan of what I'm seeing them do, which is censor right-wing uh, or conservative opinions and pretty mainstream conservative opinions. I mean, they just censored a New York Post article. Um, yes, was the reporting a little shoddy? Sure, it, it was. Um, but I would that's say not, a little bit more than a little, but yeah, I get you know, that's, that's, that's not the problem. The right. problem is that this is a mainstream news outlet, and Twitter censored an article because uh, they claim it had, you know, it violated their policy. But, you know, if the same article came out about a, a Trump I'm sorry, like if it came out about Trump or, you know, one of the Trump children, I don't think it gets censored on Twitter, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and and that is, uh, that's a problem. And I think that, you know, it's it's not a secret that Twitter, that Jack Dorsey is on the left and that the people who work in Silicon Valley are on the left. And really what we need to be doing is some, like we, we have to figure out something that... Uh, makes them more of an open platform. I'm not sure exactly how we tackle this, um, how we tackle big tech censorship. Um, I'd like to try to see it get done through the market, but I really don't know how we do that because Twitter really has a monopoly on their, their kind of social media. Um, Twitter, There is no Twitter alternative that's good. Parler exists and it sucks. It's terrible. It's boomers who are you know on the right. Um, you know, it's not good. Um, 
but I don't know. Like, I don't know where else we go for Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing. I honestly, I'll, I'll address the second half of your thing first, and then I'll because I, I slightly disagree, and then I I'll, I agree with the of large part of what you said, but I'll start with the disagreement because that's more entertaining for our listeners. <laughs> the uh, I honestly don't care that Twitter has its own you know monopoly on on what it is. I I I mean, just think about it from a really pragmatic standpoint here. Were you able to access the New York Post story even while Twitter was, you know, not allowing it to be shared? Yes. All you had to do was go to any internet browser and go to the New York Post website. You could pick up a New York Post paper. You could have your friend text message it to you. There is really, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I I think this is really a problem of of what happens when a movement goes far too online. And that is what what has been occurring in my mind since... 2015, 2016, with with the Republican right, and the the idea that because Twitter isn't allowing you to see a story, not that it's good, but the idea that that somehow is 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 contributing to a culture of of censorship, of 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 stifling individual expression, is honestly on its face laughable to me. I get it. Twitter's a huge platform. It has a ton of users. I get it. I get it. I get it. But there are like 950,000 other ways for you to procure this story. I would say to people that are really concerned about Twitter not allowing one story to go out for a, for a, again, not that I think it's a great thing, but for a certain amount of time that they didn't allow a story to be reshared, that somehow that is, I mean, I'm going to allude to the integralists again because I've been getting into it with the integralists uh, a, a lot frequently, but... I mean, Saurabh Amari called it totalitarianism. That that is hilarious to me. That is that is honestly so funny to compare Twitter not allowing a story to go out to you know the the fascists not allowing books to be printed. Uh, that is that is laughable, and you should laugh at those people. And it's it, it is so indicative of people that have lived their lives online, have built up their entire persona based on online interactions. Becoming so tied into the online market that they ignore the fact that most Americans don't think the way they do. They don't obtain information the way that they do. And, and, and that's a good thing. And, um, you know, turning to what you said earlier, Matt, I totally agree that Twitter would probably not have done this if it was a story about Don Jr. or Ivanka Trump. But I, there is no but here, but it is an observation. I think a lot of this has to do with the way that the president and his followers have acted on these platforms in a lot of years, in recent years. And I wonder if a lot of this stuff goes away once Trump leaves. Now, I say that because these, these, you know, these pop-ups that have shown, you know, the, you know, the icon next to tweet saying this is blatant misinformation. Um, the ones really next to Trump tweet. Right. The one saying that, you know, Joe Scarborough is a murderer or just recently... Just this week, him suggesting, retweeting the QAnon conspiracy theory, a legitimate QAnon conspiracy theory, that Joe Biden had the Navy SEAL Team 6 killed because the Bin Laden raid was botched. What do you mean? Are you saying I mean, that's it, not true? <laughs> I'm just suggesting it. Uh, the president himself in a town hall said that the people have to decide, okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let you guys decide. It was basically <laughs> the the um, the statement, retweets don't equal endorsements, elevated to the level of uh, the executive office of, yeah. of the United States. Um, 
are, are, is the suggestion from people that uh, say that this is somehow an attack on free speech that these platforms who, you know, are, 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 are not obligated to be totally viewpoint neutral should just sit back and let the person who is the biggest account, bar none, in the history of their platform tweet ridiculous bullshit like that? If that's your standard, fine. I get it. And if you think that that's what they should be doing, fine. I get it. But that's not quite my standard. And I also don't think it should be the standard imposed on these companies. I hear a lot about regulation. I hear a lot about the growing influence of these companies. And I get it. Because they are growing in influence and they obviously have a political bias. But the idea that we should blow up the way that we've approached the internet, the way that we've approached free expression uh, on the internet... is 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 a gross overreaction to me and is reminiscent of the times when people were really concerned about the growing influence of television and for 50 years in this country until cable we only had three stations because that's all the government would basically allow it would make it so cost prohibitive for other stations to join in that's not something that i want to see and that's not something that i really want the government to be to be diving into either um there's no good justification in my mind for, uh, you know, repealing Section 230 or make, turning these, um, these these social media giants into something uh, sort of like Channel 7 on, on television where they have to censor, uh, where they have to bleep words. I mean, that that is, that is the can of worms that you open when you get into this stuff. Um, again, I'm not happy that the New York Post did this. I think the reporting that they did was shoddy. It shouldn't have been suppressed. And I think Twitter really did score an own goal here. Um, and same with Facebook. Because they make uh, it much easier, not that it's correct, but they make it much easier for proponents of regulation to argue that they should be regulated. Because the the uh, impulse to regulate in, in America, especially today and in the coming generations, is very strong. <laughs> Any last thoughts on this on this topic, Matt? Yeah, I, I think the the big problem for me was watching people uh, basically get suspended on Twitter for sharing the link to this. Um, you know, trying to find ways around you know the the ban on on sharing the link, like sharing like a, a website archive link that showed you know the article, um, hmm. and then getting banned for it. That for me was was really like questionable behavior from from Twitter to say the least. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and advocate that we overturn Section 230 because I think that that's unwise. Sure. Um, but am I going to sit here and also say that Section 230 is dogma? No. I'm going to, you know, I think we could take a look at, at reforming certain things in a way that would allow the same level of freedom. Uh, I don't know if our, our political uh, landscape well, is ready for something like what, that. But what do you mean like that? What, what, what do you want to happen to these platforms? I don't know. Um, okay. and I'm, I, I don't, I, I, that's why I'm saying we need to, I, I, I'm not involved in the big tech conversation as much as I think I should be. Um, yeah. and I need to do Neither some more I. research, uh, on, on some of this stuff, but I do know that corporations have a social responsibility, uh, that's outside ha, of, ha, of profits. Ha. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a Friedman, <laughs> uh, you know, you're straw man and Friedman, but I get what you're saying. Um, like, I, I think that. I, I think that corporations do have some form of social responsibility, and I think that 
Um, and Friedman would say the uh, responsibility of corporations to make profits makes this policy seem stupid. Um, and and uh, I, I, I would agree with that assessment because these companies, I think, actually do because, – because believe it or not, Matt, these companies are adopting that standard that they have responsibility to other people besides profit holders, uh, besides, besides shareholders, um, and are trying to get rid of the scum that inevitably pops up on these platforms. And um, – I would argue that they should really just focus on making profit right now. If uh, if 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 you're if, because once you get into this uh, game that they're already playing of trying to make their platforms uh, and, and trying to follow their responsibility of, of 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 being accountable to other stakeholders, not just shareholders, that's where you get into this territory, and that's a perfect manifestation of of why Friedman was right in my mind. Individuals have responsibilities. Corporations don't, and government shouldn't cram that down their throats by fiat. Um, I, I know that's not. Your, I don't know if I government know should position. cram responsibility down. I know that's not your position. Throat, but uh, you know, I think it's a good thing if if corporations are you know giving to charity or uh, supporting social causes. Of course, et um, Of course, that's. I and mean, I think that's, they have a responsibility a to treat their workers too. well. I don't think it's about profit, though. Um, and if you want to make it about profit, I you know go ahead. But what I, this I, whole I, thing, what this whole thing breaks down to, as always between you and I, is a deontological versus consequentialist argument. Sometimes you're on the deontological side. Sometimes you're on the consequentialist argument. And same here with you and I. And I think here I'm on the consequentialist argument. You're on the deontological argument, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a, it is a problem that needs to be addressed. How it's going to be addressed is going to be a fight that I don't think I'm ready for to address, and I don't think a lot of people are ready for because there are people that are interested in molding these institutions to fit their own political agendas on both sides, and that's very concerning to me. Um, yeah. Any last thoughts here? Uh, no, I think I think we covered it all. Okay, so let's quickly talk about this. I didn't allude to it at the top of the show, but um, there's been leaked audio from a uh, from a, a donor conversation, I believe, right? Or a constituent, there's a constituent call. Constituent okay. call. Const- a constituent call between Ben Sass and his constituents of Nebraska. And on the call, Sass really goes in, and this was this is from this year because he's talking about Corona, the coronavirus. Um, this is uh, this is kind of remarkable. Uh, Sass goes really in on, 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 on President Trump in a way that he hasn't done since, since 2015. Uh, he called, he said that Trump kisses dictators, bots, mock, mocks evangelicals, uh, flirted with white supremacists, and, uh, in, um, it, it, it's really interesting because it seems to me that this is the first, the first attempt of somebody to position themselves for the upcoming fight in the GOP. Now, I, I, let's let's take a look at the election that we're go, we're going to have coming up. According to five thirty eight, I think this is why SAS is making this. I, I honestly think somebody leaked this from the SAS campaign or the SAS office um, to the press in an effort to position himself already against Trump because it seems apparent at this moment that Trump is going to lose. According to five thirty eight. Uh, Trump now has a 13% chance winning the popular vote. That is the lowest point of the entire, uh, excuse me, of winning the election. That is the lowest point of the election thus far. 
and there's no signs that it's going to get better for him. 538 has moved Georgia into the Biden column. And uh, we're, if the polls hold correctly, we are looking for a biblical uh, election result here. That is really going to raise a lot of open questions as to the future of the GOP. So I think, like I said, that this is the first move from Ben Sass to position himself against Trump uh, for 2024. I'm a big Ben Sass fan. I'm going to write him in. I know you've done the same for president. Yes. I wish you would say this out loud, Matt. This is a slight criticism of Ben Sass. I wonder if this stuff is actually going to matter. Um, has he already shot his credibility? Have people that you know are trying to position themselves tactically to be against Trump for 2024? He needs to go out full force right now. He's going to win his election. He's a Republican in Nebraska. He's won the primary. Um, and the election is, is coming. And I really think that he just needs to go full force. Um and just say this stuff publicly. I think that this it shouldn't be a, um, you know, a a problem. I guess like it, I think it really needs to just be. He needs to you know have some cojones and uh, and go for it and just be against Trump. Um, I think that helps him. I think especially when Trump loses, um, that's going to be very helpful to him uh, to run for office in twenty twenty four if he decides he wants to run for president. Um, which I think he should. I'd support him if he did. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that he's a little bit... Um, I, I think he's he's playing his cards too close to his chest. Uh, the reason why I ask if, if, if this, is, this is a problem for him is because I would have loved... I love Ben Sass. I would have yeah. loved for him to say this stuff back in January. Now, I get it. He had a primary he had to deal with. He's up for election... But it just reeks of political opportunism, and I would have loved for him to say it earlier, because I actually think Ben Sass's justification is fine in my mind. He's one of, a, you know, one of, uh, honestly, less than five people in the, in the houses of Congress and in the conservative movement that have attempted to not play the stupid partisan game, and... Has been has been one of the most vocal, I think, intellectually fair conservative critics of the president in comparison to many of many other of his colleagues and um, and uh, comrades, so to say, in the conservative movement. I I I I I I'll say this: Love Ben Sass. I'm going to vote for him in November. If there was Ben Sass on policy, which I love. If there was Ben Sass and you know in in temperament in approach to government, love it. Uh, that um, that had been somehow more outspoken earlier than Ben Sass has. I would vote for him over Ben Sass, but right now I think somebody like Ben Sass is the best future for the GOP that we have available right now. And I honestly th- can't think of a single person um, that has an inkling of running for president that. That is anywhere close to the level of uh, integrity that that Ben Sass has still in, in my mind, and I wish, I just wish he would say it right now because Trump is going to get his ass handed to him, and uh, and the and the Republicans are going to be in a tough position for many years to come. And I think we need to fundamentally change the way that we've been approaching politics, and I think Ben Sass is somebody that could do that. But it's it's going it's the first salvo of the fight for the next four years, Matt, and it's going to be quite interesting. Now, yes, it should be it should be interesting. Um... 
I just I just pray we keep the Senate. That's that's yeah. I kind of feel like I know we've talked about this lately, but uh, I've said it over and over and over again. The blow up the GOP position has become more and more appealing in my mind. I mean, Kelly Loeffler, who's running to keep her seat in the Senate um, down in Georgia, just came out saying that she 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 lauded the endorsement of 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 Marjorie Kareen, who is the QAnon candidate in Georgia, the nine eleven conspiracy theorist, and. I honestly just, I, I mean, my gut impulse, and I'm not saying it's based in sound logic, although I think it's somewhat based in sound logic in my mind, is that you need to excise these people from the party. And uh, the only way to do that is to really have a terrible loss. Um, but I'm also banking on the hope that the GOP responds accordingly and doesn't go batshit crazy after such a bad loss and, and become more Trumpy or more nationalist or more populist. So who the hell knows? But it's good to, it's good to see Ben Sass um, saying to his constituents what is what is eminently true, and that is Trump is incredibly an incredibly terrible figure, an, an incredibly damaging figure to the party. So, all right, we done with this, Matt? Yeah, I suppose we are. All right, let's move on to our final segment. What you looking at, uh, Matt? What you looking at this week? Yeah, so I've been reading. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, discourse Jean-Jacques. on the origin of inequality. Um, I'm reading this for my social and political philosophy class. It's pretty short. Um, Rousseau is eminently easier to read than Locke. I just finished Locke's um, second That's treatise Locke on government. That's because Locke is better. Um, yeah, Locke isn't a gr- the best writer, though. It's uh, not super easy to follow. <laughs> um, but but Rousseau's... Um, Rousseau... Uh, it's you can see where he's heavily influenced he he has heavily influenced like Marx and stuff in this in this you know treatise basically he holds and, and there's some stuff I agree with and I, I I only you know about halfway through it so I haven't really fully um digested everything but like there's some stuff that I agree with the, the idea that um technology basically changes how humans operate uh, but at the same time, I think that Rousseau makes this like appeal to the, quote the savage human, or um, like this this savage state of man that like rationality just like takes away, uh, and it's not really that um, it's not very compelling. I think that Rousseau is hinting at this idea that um, it would almost be better if man were uh, not civilized, if we were just animals. Um, which is really uh, kind of deplorable um, thoughts. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's some interesting discussion that happens in here uh, about um, kind of the role that technology plays in shaping man, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's an interesting read. Um, I wouldn't really recommend it if, if you're looking to read, like, I mean, if you're looking to read philosophy, I, go ahead and read it. I, I do recommend it. But, like, to the average Joe Schmo on the street, I'm not going to hand this out because uh, I don't really think it's um, – I don't know. It's interesting. I, I – yeah. <laughs> so for what I'm gathering is that Matt Lewis owns Rousseau with facts and logic um, from from your reading this week. <laughs> sure. Actually, right after right after I finish the book, um, I'm, I'm in my backlog of National Review articles. And after this little tangent, you can go. Um, but uh, – the feature piece of not the most current issue, uh, 
but the one before it, at least the one that I have in print, because they get mailed to me a little bit after they're actually like out on, as a PDF on the website. Um, yeah. Same here but, with all my magazines, especially now. They're so late. Yeah. Um, but the the one, it's called Our Jacobin Moment is the, the, the feature page on the front. Uh, and yep. the feature article inside is called The Gospel of Jean-Jacques. And it's actually, it's very fitting. I haven't read the article yet, but I'm looking forward to it because I, I, I'm assuming they're about to rip apart Rousseau. Um, and uh, I'm going to enjoy that. Very good. Very good. Um, I'm reading a little bit of philosophy right now, but I won't go into that until I'm done. I'm reading Plato's Five Dialogues and the Trial of Socrates. But um, I do want to talk about George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. Great book. I've actually wanted to read this. Kind of dry. It's a, okay. it's a shorter read. It's only about 170 pages. Um, but what Orwell... What Orwell really does well in this in this book, it, it, it's basically a brief synopsis is his experience fighting as a foreigner in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you know, Orwell is cited incessantly by the right as a as a, a critic of socialism and uh, totalitarianism, <laughs> which is not true. <laughs> um, he was a critic of totalitarianism, but not of socialism or collectivism. He was a he, he, he fought, fought in the, the yeah. he fought he <laughs> fought he fought for the Reds um, in the war. He fought as an anarchist. But um, what Orwell really does well, and I think a good connection to to contemporary issues that I kind of picked up on, is really talk about two things. One is popular front politics. Um, he specifically mentions the popular front that arose in Spain. Uh, you know, you had the you had the communists, the socialists, the the anarchists, and everyone in between on the left, grouped together fighting against the fascist Republicans on the on the right, and uh, that phenomenon is really something that is is unique to human beings in their desire to otherize and look over differences in order to frame the conflict as us versus them. And then on top of that, he also talks about how popular fronts, the, the whole, so the first half of the book is his experience fighting in the war. The second half of the book is his experience returning to Barcelona after being injured and seeing the popular front crumble, seeing the socialists fight the communists, the communists fight the anarchists, and uh, eventually, the entire city of Barcelona is just a shooting gallery of people staking out positions in, in, in tall buildings and shooting at other factions that are stationed in, 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 in buildings. You know, so the socialists are in one building, the anarchists are in the other building, and they're shooting at each other on rooftops. Uh, and this occurs multiple times during his time in Barcelona. You'll have a period where they're all fighting each other, then the fascists do something, and they all unite, and then they go back to fighting each other. And it reminds me of the current moment that we're seeing right now, where... This election has so become an us versus them phenomenon, while at the same time, you know, there's, you know, in my opinion, I'm, you know, I, I'm part of the faction that doesn't want to be involved at all with the, the us versus them shit. But there's a faction of Republicans that are willing to overlook the flaws of people that are their comrades, to use Orwell's terms, in, in, in the popular front struggle against the left. And the same thing is true of the people on the left. You have Joe Biden trying to split the baby between the Bernie Sanders crowd and and Blue Dog Democrats that are going to vote for him because they hate Trump. And also, uh, you have Republican voters against Trump that are now voting Democrat. So it's really, really, really interesting to see that dynamic play out in another place and see Orwell's experiences. 
And I can also see directly how this can lead him to write something like Animal Farm in 1984. I mean, he, he talks about how newspapers were, were uh, you know, uh, um, stifled and, and censored. It's, it's just really interesting to see um, Orwell's personal connection to the conflict and the way it transposed itself on his later works and the way it relates to the, uh, to the current moment. So I highly recommend Homage to Catalonia. Very nice. Yeah, I, I have wanted to get around to reading that. Um, I'm a, I like Orwell. I like um, 1984. I like Animal Farm. I've read both of those, uh, but I've never, I haven't read anything else from him. So I've only read his kind of two famous ones. Uh, I not that Homage to Catalonia. Sorry? I actually went out and bought Animal Farm after reading this book. Oh, you haven't read it? No, I've read 1984, but I haven't read it. Okay, Animal, Farm. Animal you'll you'll enjoy Animal Farm. It's it's a fun one. Um, okay. And it's short, so you'll probably you can finish that in a couple of days. Yes, um, I bought a book with big text, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, it is uh, that that was an excellent book. Um, so I, I I should probably get around to reading that at some point. Although I have a huge bookshelf behind me with lots to read, uh, so. Same here. I, I yeah. I don't, I, I can't be buying, buying books. more books. I can't I be bought, buying more books. <laughs> I bought I bought Animal Farm fourteen ninety one, um, because I'm learning a ton about indigenous, um. Okay. Peoples before uh, Columbus um, in Spanish right now, so I'm really fascinated by that stuff some more. I want to learn more about you know the Inca, the Aztecs, the Maya, the Mound yeah, people, yeah. all that type of stuff because that's a blind spot in my history. And then uh, I also bought um, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Um, I have Hillbilly Elegy. I've, I've my mom read it and said it was excellent, uh, okay. and so I've. I've have it on uh, extended loan from her. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, but I know they're making that into a movie now on Netflix. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Uh, which I will not be watching. <laughs> listen back to earlier episodes to, to listen to our argument about that. All right, that, that about wraps up episode fifty-one. Follow us on Twitter and so and 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 I almost said Facebook. Twitter and Instagram at AHDPod. Facebook is for uh, boomers. Facebook is for boomers. We don't have that. Uh, follow myself at Nick Samarco, S-A-M-M-A-R-C-O. Follow Matt at Matt. Three T's are Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Follow Ben at Benedict Lucius, L-U-C-I-U-S. Signal Andy by firing two flares on the roof of the Mystic Aquarium, and he'll come running out of the woods. Give us a like on uh, on those platforms. Please follow us on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. would be more than helpful. And, uh, yeah, with that, my name's Nick Samarco, joined as always by my co-host, Matthew Lewis. Yes. And we will talk to you guys (laughs) next week. All right. With that.